0: Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, recording from New York in a slightly noisy WeWork. So apologies if that affects the sound quality later. Joining me on the show today are Spiked Editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spike Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello, hello. Coming up today, Notre Dame, Ilan Omar and Roger Scruton. ...stood on the banks of the River Seine for more than 800 years. Tonight, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is completely engulfed by fire. This
1: is the moment when that spire, La Flèche as it's called, crashed to earth. A building that has been a symbol of France itself for 900 years. A building of such beauty and renown that it truly belongs to the world.
0: On Monday, Notre Dame Cathedral went up in flames. The cathedral's iconic spires collapsed and the roof was destroyed. Completed in the 13th century, Notre Dame's foundation stones were laid in 1163. It survived religious wars, revolutions and even Nazi occupation. Brendan, why has the destruction of Notre Dame touched such a nerve?
2: Uh, I think it's an incredibly tragic event. I think it's it's obviously such an important building, as many, many people have pointed out, um, not only religiously, but historically in terms of um, the architectural achievements, the length of time it's been there, the sense of permanence it gives to France and uh, to Europe itself, I would say. And all of the things it contains, which are religious relics, uh, amazing works of art, the rose windows, which contain the same stained glass that was put there 800 years ago by Parisian glass workers. All of that means that it is one of the most permanent symbols in Europe. And, um, you know, people often think of France and they think of the Eiffel Tower. But of course, the Eiffel Tower is very new and modern. Um, and is an amazing feat of engineering, of course, but Notre Dame is entirely different. And uh, and I was surprised to read, in fact, that it's the most popular tourist destination in Western mm-hmm. Europe. But mm-hmm. that actually makes sense, given its history, um, the way it's been dramatized in various works of literature uh, and what it contains. So I thought it was very important. I thought the outpouring of concern for it was really interesting because, you know, of course, there's always the temptation to think that people are looking for... a a huge event around which to get emotional. But I think that would have been far too cynical a response because I think what people recognised in the burning of this building was the importance of tradition and legacy and history and all the things that we are a bit sniffy about these days, particularly the, the political and cultural elites tend to be quite sniffy about them. Uh, and I've, I, I, you could hear that in the things that people were saying, particularly French people who were interviewed on TV and people in general online. What they were saying was, you know, this is an old building, this is an important building, this is a meaningful building, um, and it's really terrible that it's um, caught fire. So I think that it it spoke to a yearning for. A sense of human legacy and a sense of understanding where we come from as a species. And I I really got a sense of that from a lot of the concern that came
0: out. Tom?
1: Yeah, I think it was interesting how it struck a lot of people in a really visceral way. So, Mm. primarily, obviously, people in Paris. If you watch some of the footage of when the spire falls, there's just this enormous audible gasp. And you just kind of think how central that is, obviously, to to the Paris skyline and to to people in Paris but then of course then you get this kind of ripple across social media where loads of people respond to this in an incredibly personal way and of course there was a as with all these things there can be an element of it which can be sometimes a little bit silly there was this kind of slightly narcissistic trend that you see of people just kind of sharing pictures of I was there just three years ago there was quite a funny piece on Spectator US about this about how um this fire will hit hardest um, would-be Instagram influencers, etc. So there's a bit of that going on and that tendency to see in any kind of tragedy just an opportunity to talk about yourself. A mm. bit of that going on. There was also, of course, the inevitable um, kind of horrendous hot takes from either sides of the culture war. people yeah. Claiming with no evidence that this was obviously some sort of um, Islamist attack mm. um, through to when various wealthy people started to send money or pledge money for the restoration saying, oh, where are they when people are going hungry, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So a lot of that going on, which is, um, isn't is necessarily particularly um, edifying, but on the whole, I think you saw a very visceral and a very real reaction um, along the lines of exactly what brendan's talking about i think one clip that was shared a lot which i think um resonated with a lot of people was from kenneth clark's civilization he says mm. something to the effect of i can't really define civilization in the abstract but i know it when i see it and turns around and there Notre Dame is in the background and i think this week that's a feeling that a lot of people not just in paris but across the world have felt
0: one thing that's that was really striking and you wrote about this this week brendan is is what a rebuke um the fantastic Notre Dame Cathedral is to those who take on this kind of year zero attitude to to history. you know if you think about the way Europe is talked about as if it began in one thousand nine hundred and forty five mm. or even perhaps in the 1950s with the European Union, mm. you know people are quite happy to raise statues to the ground mm, I think absolutely I think
2: you know we live in a year zero culture there is a lot of people who. Uh, Who who look at the past as a very shameful thing, you know, full of horror and war and imperialism. And, you know, there's all these efforts to to force the British government to institute, you know, imperial imperialism studies in schools and teach kids about slavery, basically, you know, teach them how awful we are. And I'm Mm. sure there is unquestionably a similar process in France which is kind of often consumed by self-loathing these days so um, there's all that there's a real sense of distance from the past um, and fear of the future that's the irony of the times we live in so we live in an era of presentism everyone is just meant to be in the moment because the past is seen as this horrific thing where everyone was racist and murderous and crazy and the future is seen as this terrible thing which humans are going to destroy with our carbon footprint so we have a very presentist approach to everything so when you see something like notre dame which is just you know the stone expression of human history itself and you see it in flames that does have an impact on people more broadly who Mm. who don't particularly like the presentist outlook and who do appreciate the past and what it gave us which is pretty much everything that we have. So I thought that was really important kind of slap in the face to the year zero intolerance Mm. that we live under. Um, I think as a one thing that will be interesting is what France does now in relation Mm. to Notre Dame. I do think there will be a lot of confusion as to what to do to it and with it over the next five years as they're as they're rescuing it from the ashes um inside the building uh, you know rolling stone this week had an article uh saying that it needs the whole of notre dame needs to be rethought and mm. it can't just go back to being a uh, christian um structure it can't just yeah. go back to being what it was it has to be rethought as a modern symbol Uh, And there was a real pushback against that. You know, some people online saying, what do you want, a mosque? And things like that, which I thought was quite funny. multi-faith prayer room. multi-faith, all that stuff. So the pushback was quite heartening. People saying, look, leave it alone. Um, But I think we'll see more of that. Mm. And, you know, Ben Shapiro this week, and I'm not a massive fan of Ben Shapiro, but he made the point that it's a symbol of Judeo-Christian culture. And he got so much flack. And people actually were saying to him, there's a piece in the Washington Post accusing him of islamophobia simply for using the phrase judeo christian even though it's patently obvious to everyone mm. what that means and that it is correct in relation to somewhere like Notre Dame so as thing i think at the moment there's a lot of shock there's a lot of concern and i think that is pretty widespread i think the hot takes tom's talking about are at the moment um quite small. Yeah, restrained. Um, Yeah, Yeah. but I think more of that's going to come out. I think the confusions of the contemporary period probably will be expressed in the next few weeks as people start talking about Where now for Notre Dame. Mm.
0: And can you imagine today, I'm just on this point about presentism, you know, anyone building something that they could imagine is going to last a thousand years, you know, a thousand years in the future that we'd want to pass on from, you know, today's, whether it's today's miserable architecture (laughs) or anything like that. Well, the
2: point was that um, Notre Dame was intended to last forever. I mean, the people who built it genuinely thought to themselves, this will last forever. And there's so little of that kind of sense of, you know, making such an imprint on the human surroundings there's very little sense of that these days
1: it's interesting as well talking about the kind of year zero mentality because that mentality is by its nature kind of more nihilistic than anything else it just wants to kind of raise things to the ground and it was interesting as well there were a lot of stories circulating in the wake of the fire about the kind of spate of attacks on churches and particularly catholic churches in in france that have been going on kind of spiking over recent months and what's interesting is that obviously people make assumptions about who is doing that but a lot of it is apparently coming from feminist groups (laughs) going in and knocking over virgin Mary statues etc etc and it's just interesting how you know whether it was um, you know Isis storming into Palmyra and pushing over ancient relics it's actually relatively mainstream in certain political circles this idea that these um, idols have to be destroyed, and in a weird way. And I think we see it in everything from you know these apparent feminists who have been rampaging round churches, through to something like the Rose Must Fall movement in Oxford, is not is fundamentally an expression of self loathing about your own society, but not really anything future orientated. As you mm. say, not really anything that's about expressing something about who we are as a society now and wanting to build something that is for the future there's something about the current period which is all about wanting to forget about the past destroy the past raise um, any of its traces kind of to the ground but with no real clear idea of what a better society a better symbol in that sense looks like
0: I'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to Spiked. I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spiked has some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So, if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Democratic Congresswoman Ilan Omar has been widely condemned for her remarks on 9-11, summarizing the terror attacks as some people did something. Her defenders say her remarks have been taken out of context. Not only that, they argue that the attacks on Omar are racist and act as an incitement to violence. Tom, what did you make of uh, Ilan Omar's remarks?
1: I think they were definitely strange. I think she does struggle from the position on some level at the moment in which she has invited a higher level of scrutiny, largely because of the things that she has said in the past. In some cases, apologised for them, in other cases, not. I mean, this has been rumbling on for a good, for a long time now. Um, Just to sort of remind people in 2012, she tweeted that um, Israel had hypnotized the world, drawing a lot of accusations of anti-Semitism when those things were dug up. She kind of half apologized for that. She later suggested that the reason so many people in um, US Congress were pro-Israel was because of money, that it was all about the Benjamins, again, seeming to echo anti-Semitic tropes. Um, and her response to a lot of these scandals has often been to apologise, but then also to kind of double down in the sense and to suggest that the attacks on her are largely Islamophobic in nature, that this is about, um, you know, the establishment, as it were, um, just wanting to reject this new generation of freshmen, congressmen from all various different diverse backgrounds, of which she's very much a part alongside people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So you get into this situation where she says something that is really strange. I mean, when you, you know, just given the amount of scrutiny that is put on her you would think that she would have chosen her words more carefully describing this terrorist atrocity which still um resonates and horrifies so many people in this country as something done by some people um and whilst you could say that maybe some people were again inevitably in the political climate wherein we're in people going to take certain comments and, and and use them to score political gain but there was something very odd about it and i think that if anything her tendency to double down after the fact and to just use this as an opportunity to kind of burnish her own victimhood really um, again, makes you suspicious about what her real intent is in all of this, you know. So I think it was uh, it was an odd comment. Was it explicitly making fun of nine eleven? Maybe not, but it certainly provokes a fair amount of criticism, which she doesn't seem to want to meet in any sort of way. Just wants to deflect. If it feels.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the the response to the criticism is what has been. In- completely fascinating i mean trump tweeted this video which showed omar's comments and then followed by you know footage of the 9-11 attacks okay not big not clever but then beto o'rourke elizabeth warren both come out and say that this kind of criticism is inciting violence yeah. against her um aoc said this is an incitement of violence against a progressive woman of color yeah. The media are constantly reporting that there's been a rise in death threats against Omar, and there, there's just this insinuation that you know any criticism of these remarks is is an incitement to violence, and, and and it's amazing because it's almost created a kind of moral force field around a politician. You know that you either can't criticize her because it's Islamophobic, or you can't criticize her because it's an incitement to violence. Mm. Um, I think she's an idiot. And I'm just amazed that the Democrats have allowed her
2: to become the face of the party. Yeah. I think that's quite a worrying situation for the Democrats to be in. It's not entirely their fault. I mean, it's certainly the case that Trump milks her comments, whatever, whenever she makes a stupid comment, Trump milks them for all their worth. And kind of makes fun of her and and um as David Frum pointed out in a piece in um The Atlantic I think the Democrats are falling for Trump's tricks now Mm. who knows if Trump is this clever but his argument Frum's argument is that um Trump is pushing Omar in such a way that the Democrats will be forced to defend her and then she will become the public face of this party and as a consequence the party will become less popular now that may well happen and um i think it probably will at some level mm. but i think she is i think her comments definitely minimize 9-11 i think there's no question about that um uh, you know were they the most offensive comments in modern american politics no but absolutely they minimize 9-11 and she minimized 9-11 to, to to the end of exaggerating the explosion of islamophobia after 9-11 mm. so people say you've got to listen to her comments in context well if you listen to the comments in context she brushes aside 9-11 in order to focus obsessively on the explosion of Islamophobia after 9-11, which is largely a myth. So her comments were incredibly problematic and will annoy a lot of American people. I think she... Um, the phenomenon of Ilan Omar really speaks to the kind of staggering sense of cultural entitlement that people have as a result of the politics of identity. So the more that we say to people, you are your inherited characteristics, you are your skin color, you are your religion, that's who. That's what defines you, that's the authority from which you speak, that's why people must listen to you, then what you do is you just give them this incredible sense of cultural arrogance where, you know, I'm right, I speak for all Muslims because I'm a Muslim. I'm right in what I say because I've had that experience. And anyone who criticizes me is a racist or Islamophobe or whatever else it Mm. might be. It's a worrying state for politics to be in.
1: I think the interesting thing as well, as you say, and it's very similar with AOC as well, which is because these people have both themselves but also the people around them and the media in particular have turned them into symbols, that what they actually say and do, their actual level of competence, whether in Omar's case in particular she harbours certain... Prejudices almost becomes irrelevant, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's this very strange reflex, which is, despite the fact you can see there's a tentativeness, not just amongst the Democratic establishment, but but Democrats in general, to fully embrace her. I thought it was interesting earlier this Mm -hmm. week when Bernie Sanders was asked about this, and of course he, like many Democrats, quite um, strongly defended her after she came under fire for these comments. But um, when he was referred to as a strong supporter of Ilhan Omar, he said, hold it, hold it, I've only met her like twice. So there's this (laughs) kind of, you know, concern and embrace. But nevertheless, because the Democrats and the kind of um democratic the pro the democrat leaning kind of media etc have so bought into this politics of identity and representation that it almost doesn't matter how much of an embarrassment she becomes it just mm. defending her at all costs becomes really really serious despite the fact that i think most people aside from you know a few people at fox and friends getting a bit carried away with themselves and asking you know where her true loyalties lie etc stuff that we would all find a bit unpleasant most of the criticism has been mainly leveled at what it is she is specifically saying not mm. who she is as an individual but for whatever reason um, it's, you know the two are just completely conflated at this point which makes talking about someone and actually taking them to task for what they've actually said and done almost impossible at this point. The other thing I'll just chuck in is how dangerous it is the way in which people talk about incitement to violence at the moment. You know, mm. Incitement to violence, especially in this country, is something that's very tightly defined as something you know pe- people actually very actively inciting violence against individuals and it being very likely for it to be carried out as a consequence and yet the way in which you have Politicians from across the spectrum, or at least across the democratic spectrum, just openly talking about what is effectively quite um, robust critique of someone as a form of incitement to violence shows how much that is being used as a way to kind of chill discussion, how um, flabby those terms have become in such a short space of time, it feels like. Yeah,
2: and I think the whole Ilan Omar thing really reveals how much... Campus politics is is leaking into the real world yet again because mm. this whole idea that words are violence, this whole idea that you can't criticize people of a certain gender or race or whatever it might be, um, you know, take hold on campuses and lo and behold, spread into politics when that generation comes of age and goes into Congress and everything else. So that that is a worrying development. I also think there's a huge amount of um, the bigotry of low expectations yeah. in relation to Omar because the implication is always that. Um, you know, she's almost allowed to say these things because of her background and because of who she is. So if you look at the excuses that were made for her anti-Semitism, and I do think she has anti-Semitic tendencies when she says Israel has hypnotized the world or Israel is buying off politicians or, um, you know, there's dual loyalty among some Americans. You know, they're more loyal to Israel than they are to America. Those are all anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, but it was completely brushed aside by people who were saying, well, don't criticize her too harshly because she's a Muslim. Don't criticize her too harshly because that would be Islamophobia. Yeah. And you think you now reach a situation where they're excusing racist expressions under the guise of protecting her from criticism. And that is a really worrying situation.
0: Hi there, I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far, and if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us, so we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. Last week, Roger Scruton was sacked as a government advisor following an interview in the New Statesman. Scruton's references to a Soros empire and his description of Islamophobia as a propaganda word to silence debate were seized upon by his critics. The New Statesman's deputy editor, who conducted the interview, shortened and adapted some of Scruton's quotes to make him appear more racist on social media. Eaton also posted a picture of himself celebrating Scruton's sacking with a bottle of champagne. Brendan, what do you make of the hatchet job on Roger Scruton? I think it was outrageous. I'm amazed that he remains
2: sacked from the government. I mean, maybe he doesn't want to go back, but I uh, i think the whole thing really stinks. So on the one hand, um, the interview was a stitch up. Um, yeah. It was obviously mm. designed to get those comments about controversial things. Then even worse than that, it was spun in a particular way on social media to the extent that it was almost misquoted. George Eaton almost misquoted his own interviews in the way in which he truncated certain comments to make Scruton look like an anti-Chinese racist or to make him look like an anti-Semite. If you read the interview, there is nothing in there that suggests anti-Chinese racism or anti-Semitism. And yet that's how it was spun. And then you have this cowardly, weak-willed, pathetic conservative party Mm. rolling over in front of the Twitter mob and sacking him i think that's almost the most shameful part of it where the conservative party can't even stand up for yeah. one of the most important conservative philosophers of our times and that so the whole thing was an outrage but it really but i think it was the clearest example yet of the weaponization of identitarianism and, the, and accusations of racism to score a political point and to claim yeah. a political scalp. I mean, it was so openly designed to do that. And the drinking of the champagne was so clearly a celebration mm. of their success. So I think it really calls into question the standards at the New Statesman and the, the use of journalism more broadly simply to settle political scores.
0: And yeah, I and mean, one thing that's quite interesting is that actually this interview revealed nothing new in a sense. I mean, that's why it read so badly because it was yeah. clearly just uh, you said this, do you agree with it? And of course, Scruton stood by his <laughs> um his remarks. I mean, it it was basically, you know, riffing on an earlier story from BuzzFeed in November last year which, again, claimed to have this expose of Roger Scruton. Yeah. But it was all based on remarks he'd made publicly, you know, from in various interviews in his columns and things like that. They were just expressions a lot of the time of his conservative views, essentially. And, you know, for me, there's no shortage of irony in the fact that Scruton in the 80s was um, smuggling basically banned books into communist Czechoslovakia Mm. and eventually he was caught by the government. He was placed on what they called an index of undesirable people. (laughs) It's it's extraordinary that in Britain in 2019 he has kind of become undesirable once more and is you know even blocked from doing government work.
1: And it's interesting seeing the kind of um, the well wishes to him kind of pour in from various people you know. former Czech dissidents, etc. Yeah. <laughs> you just think, what a weird world we're in. It, it's, it's interesting, as it's about the role that the media is, in, is increasingly playing um, on particular commentators now, you know, the new statesman, it seems, where... Uh, reporting just and interviewing people is just a political weapon you know mm-hmm. like there is obviously journalists are there to hold people to account if they expose certain things about them which um, could lead to their sacking that's all part of the course but this is a kind of clearly concerted campaign to bring a particular person down you know I mean the, I thought it was interesting that if anything it was kind of surprising this didn't happen earlier because of course there was yeah. a lot of backlash to when he was first appointed to this mm. building better building beautiful commission which was um, <laughs> looking into housing but I the other thing that was I think it's worth just sort of reminding people about was how obviously a stitch up this was. You had obviously the, the written interview but there is no two ways about it that when George Eaton was pu- was basically pulling out these quotes from the interview on Twitter that he was doing that he was misrepresenting the quotes itself. You know, mm-hmm. there's the one quote which um, he put out he just said Roger Scruton on the Chinese colon each Chinese person is a kind of replica of the next one, and that is a very frightening thing. What he misses out there is the first half of that sentence where he's talking about how the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, is making, as he put it, robots out of their own people, enforcing yeah. conformity, etc. There is no way that this was just him, you know, trimming so that he could get it within 280 mm-hmm. characters. Mm-hmm. It's so clear. And the fact, you know, it's been, whilst I don't think we want to get into a situation where it's kind of just. Sac calls for sackings on all sides. You do wonder how mm. this was allowed to slip through the that, and how this behaviour was really allowed to go on but i think just to tack on to Brenda's point the cowardice of the conservative party in relation to this really really is striking the fact that all it took was one twitter thread from <laughs> from um george eaton for james brokenshire the housing minister just to just expel him i thought was really really striking Now i'm not a conservative you would wonder what's the point of a conservative party if it wants nothing to do with roger Scruton.
0: well exactly i mean it's 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 bizarre the intolerance towards you know conservative views is really remarkable i mean I, You know, I'm with you, Tom, I'm no conservative. I don't actually, I don't agree with Roger Scruton very much. There was one, you know, there was maybe one quote in that interview that made me bristle a little bit where he's talking about, you know, hordes of Muslims coming into Hungary. I thought, well, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit icky. But the rest of the stuff is, is just pretty normal, you know, conservative thought, isn't it? Mm. I think
2: if the Tory party has any, any remaining lingering sense of um, itself, It would reinstate him in his position. Uh, I really think that's something they should consider doing. I don't know if they are or not. But the whole thing also speaks to, I think, something quite serious, which is the shallowness of contemporary political culture. Mm. Whatever you think of Roger Scruton, the fact of the matter is he's an incredibly serious thinker. He's an incredibly deep thinker. I mean, he thinks about the world in a a very substantial way uh, and about huge issues to do with tradition and conserving the past and freedom and the limits to freedom all sorts of uh, very important issues and culture of course too Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, what you have on the other side of the culture war or whatever this is is just this incredibly shallow bitchy um, intolerant climate which um, is incredibly incurious incredibly anti-intellectual you know particularly among Corbynistas and it does look to many of us I think that George Eaton is basically trying to like a nerd at school, trying to get in with the cool mm. gang as he sees them of Corbinistas. The whole thing is so unbelievably tragic. But, the Instagram
1: comments seem to suggest that before. Yeah, <laughs>
2: all of that. And you just think uh, that's really embarrassing for everyone involved. But what it speaks to is in, among the Corbinista camp, which he may or may not be part of, just that kind of um, lack of intellectual depth yes. and, and suspicion of intellectual depth. And everything gets reduced to just a slogan or a shouty comment or uh, a witch hunt against someone who dares to think ever so slightly differently. So I think it does, the, the Scruton scandal, um, which is really should be called the New Statesman scandal, mm. uh, does speak to the whole, something that I'm sure Scruton himself is very worried about, which is the hollowing out of substance from public and political life. Uh, and the rise of these kind of incurious Headhunting um so-called leftists who just want to shut people down. It worries me to think people like that might at some point have some actual influence in the country.
0: You've been listening to the Spike podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.